the Future Proof Podcast from News Talk. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Hashtag believe in science. Well, hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. Thanks, as always, for subscribing, downloading, rating, letting people know if you like the show. Uh, we really do appreciate it. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. Love hearing your comments on what we're discussing, your ideas and your criticisms as well. Um, you can also tweet us. We're at News Talk Science. Coming up on this week's episode, a very interesting, exclusive and rare interview with a bomb disposal expert from Irish Defence Forces. They don't normally do interviews, um, but they wanted to talk about some of the research they're doing, uh, which they hope to share with other agencies to help them fight uh, against those who wish to cause harm and death with improvised explosives. Really fascinating interview to come on the, on the, on the podcast. First, though, quick mention for Science Week, which is happening next week. It's supported by Science Foundation Ireland, 8 to the 15th of November. Loads of events for all the family at scienceweek.ie uh, for details. And I'm taking part in a number of events for Chagisk for the Festival of Food and Farming. Uh, you can find out more details by following Chagisk on Twitter or checking out their webpage www.chagisk.ie. Right, it's time to look back at the week's science news and joining me to do so is Dr. Fergus McAuliffe from iCrag and from NUI Galway, Dr. Jessamine Fairfield. You're both very welcome. Our first story. In my lifetime, I've witnessed a terrible decline. In yours, you could and should witness a wonderful recovery. That desperate hope, ladies and gentlemen, delicate, excellency, is why the world is looking to you and why you are here. Is, of course, um, the big story of the week, the year, the millennium. Um, it is the environment. And, and while I'm sure you've heard a huge amount of uh, discussions about COP26 uh, being the flagship science show on News Talk, I thought we, we should probably talk about it a bit. And uh, Jessamine, I, I suppose this is something that we've talked about so much for so many years on the program. This isn't... Um, a once a year thing for us. What were your takeaways from COP26? I mean, people talk a lot about the pledges that are being made at COP26, and I think those are definitely important to look at. Um, the one that really stood out for me was uh, countries starting to finally take methane seriously as a greenhouse gas. Um, people talk about CO2 a lot, but methane is about 80 times as powerful as CO2 in terms of the warming potential for the atmosphere. Now, it's not as long lived, um, but that also means it's a really good sort of short term uh, target while we try to get our CO2 emissions under control. So I was right. really excited to see, you know, I think at this point, over 100 countries, um, including the US and the EU, have signed on to reduce their methane emissions by 30 percent um, by 2030. Um, so that's really exciting to see um, because methane accounts for about 30 percent of global warming. Uh, and it's a bit of an, an easier target, I think, than, than CO2 to some extent. It's tied into CO2 emissions, for example, like oil, natural gas and coal production actually also produce methane. Um, but it also involves things like agriculture, um, landfills, actually. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot to, to look at there. Um, obviously, the CO2 targets are also important, um, but I was glad to see methane kind of enter the conversation. I think the other big takeaway for me uh, is seeing a lot of the talk about the need for adaptation to the warming that's already happening and already going to happen, right? We're already locked into 1.2 degrees Celsius um, rise in global temperatures. And we've been talking, right, about how this is leading to increases in flooding, droughts, you know, sea level rises, even extreme weather events like the um, giant fires in the Pacific Northwest of the US uh, and Canada last year. So, um, the UN has estimated that probably somewhere between $140 billion and $300 billion would be needed um, in terms of investments for adaptations to those kind of things that we're already going to be seeing yeah. um, in terms of climate assistance. And only about $80 billion of that was delivered in 2019. Um, so this is things like building defenses against those kind of uh, climate events, changing the infrastructure. But I think there's also an equity aspect to it because a lot of the countries that are going to be hit the hardest by this are not the countries that caused the warming, yeah. right? So it's kind of the global South um, countries that didn't contribute a lot to the sort of global industrialization that's led to all the CO2 in the atmosphere, but unfortunately are going to be bearing the brunt of it. So I think it's really, really important that we actually talk about how we're going to you know, adapt as a globe, you know, as, for everyone to actually make sure that this has the smallest possible impact on people's lives, because it's right. already going to impact people's lives hugely. But that's not going to happen um, 
at all is it jessamine i mean i, I mean just look at vaccine distribution across the globe as mm. a microcosm of how we deal with a pressing problem uh, and uh, obviously dealing with acute problems is what every government does because a lot of the time they have four years to do what it is, what it is they're, they're supposed to do to get reelected. If we look at vaccines and how we have just kept vaccines to ourselves, um, and they are, they're, they're not easy decisions to make, but, but there are definite um, question marks over how we've distributed vaccines when we think of how wealthy countries are going to distribute their money to prevent natural disasters affecting local societies and, and, and populations they're going to look after themselves. And, and the, the real shame about this is that had we acted earlier, we wouldn't have to be making these acute fixes, building dams, um, fortifying cities and so on to protect them against these disasters. We still have to deal with the climate change. So now we have to do the acute stuff as well as the long-term stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely true. And I think I think one of the discussions that's been happening around COP26 uh, is just in terms of greenwashing and how much of this is like actual pledges that are going to make a difference and things that people are going to stick to versus just kind of saying, oh, well, we'll throw a few bucks at it and sure, that's good enough, isn't it? Um, and I think you're absolutely right in terms of the vaccine distribution parallel. You know, there have been organizations um, and, and programs to distribute vaccines and to fund them from countries. I know Ireland had a, I think, very successful one, was it through UNICEF, I think, where, you know, get a vaccine, give a vaccine. Yeah. Um, and lots of people contributed to that. But like you said, you know, the overall percentages are very damning for people in rich Western countries. Um, and I think there's some of the same thing happening around some approaches like carbon offsets, um, which very much shift the the brunt uh, to developing countries that didn't cause the problem and don't have the resources to fix it. So I think we really have to take a hard look at the numbers. Do you know, it seems to me that um, that sort of approach to philanthropy may bear fruit. I mean, individual responsibility where people feel, read the news, they hear the messaging and they feel agency to to help contribute to you know, countries that need vaccines or countries that um, need relief aid, like we've done with uh, Haiti in, in huge numbers in Ireland and, and other disasters. I think that is certainly one way that, that aid may go, but it, it's just nowhere near enough, I suppose. Fergus, what were your takeaways from COP26? Yeah, I had, uh, I had two main ones. The, the first one was on deforestation. So this is something that's uh, happening at uh, an ever-increasing in rate and just to put it in perspective, so there's an area about the size of 27 football pitches that is lost every minute of every day. So there's a, there's a huge amount of deforestation that is happening. Um, so, I mean, like, that's crazy to think about. That is an insane amount of land, 27 football pitches every single minute. It's almost impossible to conceptualize what that would look like if it was in front of you. Yeah, it is. I mean, like one of the most striking images that uh, that I've seen of late is just those like satellite images of say the Amazonian rainforest and you can just see its its size is shrinking over time and remember this is the lungs of the world and you know they're shrinking so we're we're um we're very good at cutting down trees now in in response to this um at Glasgow at COP uh, more than 100 world leaders actually came out with a pledge to end um and actually reverse deforestation by 2030 so to move into the phase of afforestation so actually increasing the amount of trees that are um, across the globe now i would say that we've we have been here before unfortunately so we have we have previous here so in 2014 there was the new york declaration on forests which again was signed by 40 countries um, and it had aimed to to half deforestation by 2020 so by yeah. last year and it actually increased so uh, we have been here before. Fingers crossed now with the with the amount of emphasis and the spotlighting that is on climate change emissions and deforestation and uh, uh, political pressure. I mean, like one of the big questions that is raised around deforestation is, say, when when countries give financial support um, to other countries that have more trees, how do they know that? Uh, that afforestation or slowing of deforestation is actually taking place. It, it, it raises huge amounts of questions with respect to, you know, are countries going to start, uh, in effect, spying on each other from space to make sure that the money they're giving to other countries uh, for afforestation is is actually happening. So, mm. um, yeah, there's a huge, a huge amount of work 
to be done through deforestation. I mean, I suppose that is a good sign. And I did hear um, in a FameLab talk, actually, that there is um, some cryptocurrency projects where people can give directly to farmers who maintain their land and 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 don't cut it down, which is, I think, is a really interesting way around um, trusting governments and trusting politicians. And I think a huge spotlight on Bolsonaro as well. What was the other thing um, that, that struck you? Yeah, the second one uh, was actually from later in the week. So it was it, it was all about coal. So obviously, we know that uh, coal is is the dirtiest fuel out there, the amount of carbon that it releases and the particulate matter that it releases is enormous, but it's 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 still very important. So it produces more than a third of the world's electricity. Um, a little bit of progress has been made. So there's been um, a pledge at COP uh, signed by 77 countries to shun the use of coal, uh, I guess, unfortunately, and importantly, that pledge, it didn't include major coal producers and users like Australia, India, right. the United States and China. Um, so we're going like, you know, it's it's a, it's a hot button issue, especially in the States at the moment. Coal is really getting caught up in politics, um, as we can see playing out in the Senate at the moment. So it's it's the sooner that we can wean ourselves off coal, the better, because it is just so polluting. So some progress made, but a huge, a huge amount more to do. Yeah, and I suppose it is interesting to see governments being called out on things they haven't managed to fulfill and our own government under fire for saying one thing publicly and then perhaps drawing um, back a bit on it. So hopefully we can keep politicians to account uh, when they make these promises. But the problem is a lot of them won't be in power by the time um, those policies do come to fruition. Let's move on to something um, a little less depressing then, shall we? Uh, two interesting stories then from this week's Science News. Fergus, uh, you were looking at uh, relationships and heart, heart rates. Yeah, let's talk about love for a while. How about that? Uh, so there's this really, really interesting study that came out of the Netherlands, and it kind of brings the show first dates to a whole new level. So... When we think about you know what we're looking for in a partner it's it's you know people that look good on paper don't often turn out that way so um this particular study what it was trying to do is it was almost trying to get to the bottom of gut feeling so what people sort of instinctively feel about someone else that they go on a date with so how they did this is they set up three dating cabins at three festivals, one for music, one for arts, and one for science, actually, in the Netherlands. And they invited over 140 uh, single heterosexual males and females uh, to go on four-minute blind dates inside these cabins. Now, they wore, these weren't just regular dates, so they wore eye-tracking glasses, heart rate monitors, and devices for monitoring the sweatiness of their palms so if you if you you weren't already nervous ahead of the first date you had to had to wear all this stuff as well so then the date started so to start the date the couples were sitting at opposite ends of a table from each other with a screen in the middle so initially they couldn't see each other then the screen was removed for three seconds and they got a glimpse of the other person at the other side of the table so their date and then the screen closed and they were asked to rate the attractiveness of that person. Hmm. Then the screen opened for two minutes and they could talk. So they could look at each other and they could talk for two minutes and then the screen closed again. And again, they were asked to rate the attractiveness. And then what I find is the weirdest slash possibly most uncomfortable one was when the screen was taken away again for two minutes and they could look at each other, but they couldn't speak. So they had to sit in silence and look at each other and look at a stranger, I might add, for two minutes. Two minutes is a long time. It's a very, very long time to look at anybody, especially when you can't talk. Now, what the results uh, that came out of this were were really interesting. So only, only 17% of the couples expressed a mutual wish to go on another date. And interestingly, those that expressed a wish to go on another date with each other, what actually happened there was that their heart rates began to speed up and synchronize. Um, so they were speeding up at the same time and slowing down at the same time. Their palm sweatiness increased and decreased in tandem. So what was happening was that on a subconscious level, they were actually falling into synchronicity. And those that were most synchronized on a subconscious level were the ones that were most likely to mutually express a desire to go hmm. on another date. 
So is it possible that um, this increase of heart rate and so on is r reflection of mutual attraction and, and therefore, is it just possible that the, the biometrics they got are just the biometrics of being attracted to somebody? Um, potentially, uh, but I, I guess what was, what was very interesting as well is that the more obvious things, so for instance, smiling at the same time, laughing at the same time, both nodding their head at the same time. So those obvious things that we're in control of, they didn't predict the level of attraction. So there's wow. something happening at the unconscious level. And it seems to be that we're just, we have an ability without knowing it to pick up each other's micro expressions. So things like pupil dilation, your eye blinking or your blushing. And uh, this seems to be, um, I guess, opening the box on what gut feeling is when it comes to love, but uh, science has still not cracked it yet, unfortunately. Our final story, Jess, uh, has, and it's a real and finally, isn't it? Uh, it has to do with whale poop. Yeah, on the face of this, this sounds like a really straightforward story. Um, it turns out that whales eat more than we thought, and they also poop more than we thought. So, okay, like you probably remember this uh, effect from Christmas's past, um, but it actually solves a really interesting uh, <laughs> mystery uh, as we all think of Christmas's past, um, it's also a really interesting mystery, which was, you know, as we all know, the whaling industry really crashed globally, the numbers of whales over the like 19th and 20th centuries. Um, a lot of conservation work has been done, and now some whale populations are starting to recover. Um, a lot of these whales, or at least the ones that were studied um, in this research out of Stanford, uh, go down to Antarctica, eat and sort of mate there, and then go back up to the equatorial areas. And a lot of what they eat is Antarctic krill. So you might expect, you know, with a really basic level of like understanding of populations um, that are feeding on each other, that if there were fewer whales, there must be like a lot more krill, right? Because there's fewer whales eating that krill. But that isn't what researchers have seen. Um, they've actually seen that the amount of krill in Antarctica has also been crashing um, over the last while and it's starting to recover. Hmm. So the question they were trying to answer is like, why is this happening? You know, if there's fewer things feeding on that krill, shouldn't it be getting bigger. And so what these researchers did was they basically tracked 321 different types of baleen whales. So this includes like humpback, blue whales, right whales. Um, and they did three different things. Um, first, they used sonar mapping to estimate the density of krill around these uh, whales. They used aerial drones to estimate their gulp size, you know, so how, how big their mouths were getting in order to take in krill. <laughs> and they also had to actually suction cup sensors to the whales um, to see when they were diving down and coming back up, which also is a predictor of when they're feeding, when they're not feeding. Um, and from this, they saw that the whales are actually eating considerably more than was previously thought, about 16 metric tons of krill a day, which what? is given in the, the helpful conversion of it's about 30,000 Big Macs a day, a lot for right. anyone, um, even if it is Christmas. And so basically, this is about three times as much as was previously thought. But what this also means, right, is that they're pooping a lot more. And what's interesting like about the feedback loops here is that actually what krill need um, in order to reproduce and have more krill is digested krill around them. So the whale poop is very iron rich. It's basically, it's been processed in a way that uh, triggers phytoplankton blooms, which is then what the krill feed on. So in fact, even though you might've thought that the population of whales going down would mean more krill, it's also meant less, which has meant this kind of feedback loop that's making it harder to bring whales back from the brink of extinction. Right. Um, but this also interestingly implies, you know, that if we do work on preserving whales, that means we'll also get more krill, right? Because of this feedback loop around whale poop, um, which then also <laughs> is actually helpful from a climate change perspective, because it means more sort of carbon rich things like krill and whales in the oceans. Uh, the researchers did this calculation that uh, bringing whales back to their pre-whaling levels would be the equivalent of getting 170 million cars off the road. So, you know, that's not the only thing that we need to do in order to fight climate change. But I think it's really interesting that this is a, a potential approach and it's a really surprising story. <laughs> Thanks very much for that, Jess. Dr. Jasmine Fairfield from NUI Galway and from ICRAG, Dr. Fergus McAuliffe. Thanks very much. Coming up, an extended and exclusive interview with a bomb disposal expert from the Irish Defence Forces. <laughs> This is Future Proof on News Talk. I'm Jonathan McRae. Now, in your newsfeed, I'm sure you'll be able to find some recent story or event that involves the explosion of some kind of improvised explosive device. 
For us here in Ireland, those occurrences are nowadays quite rare, but there are many countries where this happens weekly. And every day around the world, there are men and women who put themselves in harm's way in order to diffuse such devices. And it's by no means an easy task. So how do we make the disposal of bombs and other improvised devices safer? I'm joined now by Commandant Rowan Clark. Uh, I need to say that Rowan is not uh, his real name. His identity has been classified for operational security reasons. Rowan, uh, thanks very much for joining us on the program. Before we talk about sort of innovation and and engineering in terms of trying to keep up with um, the changes that happen in this extremely pressurized area of of technology, maybe you might tell us a little bit about your own self and uh, how you ended up in the army. Uh, certainly. Uh, thanks, Jonathan, and thanks for giving us the uh, opportunity to come on the show. Uh, myself, I've been in the Army for over 16 years. Um, I graduated from NUI Galway uh, before joining with an honours degree in microbiology uh, from NUIG and, and a master's in science after two years working there in the field of molecular genetics. Uh, so I joined the cadets in 2005 and following cadet training, I was commissioned as an officer and I joined the Ordnance Corps then in 2008 when the opportunity presented. What is Ordnance? Uh, Ordnance. Uh, well, the Ordnance Corps is one of nine corps within the Defence Forces. Um, it has two roles. The, the first role is uh, logistical in nature. Basically, the logistical role is to provide technical support to the Defence Forces for the procurement, storage, distribution, inspection, maintenance, repair, and disposal of all items of ordnance-related equipment. So to give you an idea of the span, uh, this equipment ranges from everything from night vision equipment, uh, weapons, ordnance, munitions, explosives, uh, personal protective equipment, right through to uniforms and rations, and right up to the the bomb disposal robot that, that one may see in the media. So we're responsible for all of those items, essentially from cradle to grave. It's it's sort of a fancy word for stuff. It seems <laughs> all all the stuff. Lots, um, lots so, of stuff. Yeah. so you qualified as an EOD operator uh, about eleven years ago, and you're, you've been a team leader for over ten years. What is an EOD operator? Yeah. So the the, the second role I alluded to is the the operational role of the Ordnance Corps, and and that's to train personnel for and provide the state's only explosive ordnance disposal, or or what people would call it EOD, or bomb squad capability. Uh, this function is conducted in an aided civil power role, or ATCB, in support of Vanguard Shiakana. Um, our teams are on standby 24-7, uh, 365 days a year in a number of locations throughout the country. So just to elaborate on what exactly EOD or, or, or bomb disposal is, um, it involves the rendering safe of all aspects of explosive ordnance, including improvised explosive devices, as you mentioned. Uh, we typically break this into three disciplines. Uh, The first of those is what we call conventional munitions disposal, or CMD. Uh, What this involves is rendering safe and disposal of old or time-expired items of ordnance or munitions. So to give you an example, if a grenade from the War of Independence era is found during, for example, building operations, uh, it has to be disposed of because these items of ordnance, though they're safe, are not designed to be stored under those conditions, and they will become Mm. more dangerous and unstable over time. Uh, this becomes worse then if, for example, this, this weapon system or, or munition has been deployed because we call that a blind then. So all the safety mechanisms are off and it, it's, it's basically all bets are off. So it has to be disposed of. The second pillar of EOD is what we call improvised explosive device disposal or IEDD. So IEDD is it's basically our bread and butter. Uh, an improvised explosive device is a device that's placed or fabricated in an improvised manner. Uh, they incorporate noxious, lethal, pyrotechnic, destructive, or incendiary chemicals. They're designed to destroy, incapacitate, harass, or distract. But the biggest issue with IEDs is they're exactly that, and it's it's hinted at in the name. They're they're improvised, so no two bombs look the same. Um, they're limited only by the ingenuity of the the fabricator or the perpetrator. So they can look like anything, and they can be disguised or hidden in a multitude of ways. So these would typically range from designs of simple construction, such as well-known pipe bombs, for example, right up to large vehicle-borne IEDs, which may have multiple initiation systems, complex explosive trains, and multiple triggers. The third pillar of EOD then is what we call CB or NEOD. So it's chemical, biological, radiological, or nuclear EOD. 
These devices are a bit more complicated in that they can contain explosives as a kind of a main charge, but they also contain either a toxic chemical, a radiological or a biologically hazardous material. So in common parlance, you might know the term dirty bomb. So they do, in addition, require an expanded set of special skills to render them safe. And in our training of our, our teams and all team members, first you have to qualify as a CMD operator, then an IEDD operator, and then only and only then you're safe enough to move on to CB or NEOD. What sort of level of training is required to, to, to tackle that last level of, of explosive device? Uh, presumably there's, there's a good level of electronics and engineering required, but what, what else do you go through to, to get to that level? Um, so we have two levels on the team. They're, the teams are small and they, they rely heavily on each other. So the first level are the team leaders, or EOD number ones, as they're called. Um, it's pretty obvious that th- this is a, a nowhere game to start. So our training is excellent. It's very robust. And uh, it's pretty obvious that we, we don't drop these standards because it is a dangerous game. The EOD training for a team leader, uh, first and foremost, we only take people at that level if they're already a qualified scientist or an engineer with a level eight and hyper discipline. Um, so they have a degree coming in. Um, after the two years, they'll typically qualify with a master's in mechanical engineering. But it's not just an academic course. It's also a practically very demanding and challenging task. So our team leaders have to be an excellent standard. Um, commanding one of these teams in a complex environment within the public domain and dealing with a device or an explosive hazard, uh, it poses a very real threat to public safety. So it's, it's no easy feat. So, for example, some of our team leaders are, are only 25 years of age. So, you know, you really have to be at the top of your game. And before you qualify as a team leader, we have to be 100% sure that you are proficient and competent in this job. The, the teams themselves are small. Uh, they're normally compro- comprised of three highly trained and technically qualified personnel. So I've spoken about the EOD number one. All of the assessments on the course, uh, if you can relate them back to a threat to life, they're above a 70% pass rate. And some of the assessments are just pass or fail. Um, every assessment on the course, you get two attempts. So if you fail the first time, there's only one other attempt. Uh, I might add that the uh, the academic aspect of the course, uh, you, you graduate with the, the level nine uh, master's in mechanical engineering, and that's conferred by the Institute of Technology in Carlo. And we've developed a very strong collaborative relationship with Carlo in qualifications for both EOD number ones and number twos. So the second aspect of the team is the EOD number two. Um, they're a very high, highly qualified technician in their own regard with a trade-specific skill that they've uh, acquired over about four years. So the trade will either be armor, armor artificer, uh, armor artificer instrumentation, or ammunition examiner. Uh, our EOD team number twos typically now graduate with the level seven degree in either mechanical or electrical engineering conferred by IT Carlo as well. And many of these guys or girls will upskill to a level eight degree in addition after that. And as I mentioned, the team also has a specially qualified driver in addition. So I, c- I can give you an overview or, or, or an example of one of these trades. Um, most of them are four years in, in duration. So an armor, for example, is a technician responsible for the inspection, maintenance, and repair of all inf- infantry battalion weapons and associated equipment. This would include small arms, uh, so pistols, rifles, machine guns, recoilless weapons, mortars, grenade launchers, uh, and their associated turrets and mounting systems, uh, personal protective equipment, load carrying equipment, and field catering kitchens. So it's, it, it's quite a demanding role, and it does mm. take four years to, to train up one of these highly skilled people. So this is obviously a very skills, um, an academic-focused role. Is, is, is there a fitness element being a Department of Forces role? Uh, yeah, of course. Um, yeah, uh, bomb suits are, are heavy and, and they have to be because they're, they're, they're made of quite heavy armor. They're designed to protect the, the human operator uh, when they deploy downrange to deal with an improvised explosive device. I suppose we would always say we, we can replace a robot, but we can't replace a human operator. So, so are robots not used all the time? Uh, they're not used all the time. Um, so if the tactical situation allows, we will use uh, remote means or robotic means. For obvious reasons. So we, we operate within a, a kind of a set of, of principles and philosophies. Um, as you can appreciate, improvised explosive devices are improvised. They're not the same, as I said. So there's no set, you know, kind of, you know, tick list in how to deal with a device because every situation is different and every device is different. So hmm. uh, I'll talk about some of the principles. Uh, first of all, we, we conduct our operations in order of priority as follows. 
uh, first and foremost, we protect life. And that's of paramount importance. So that's not just, uh, you know, the team members were there to assist on Garda Shikana in, in protection of life. And also next down the, the line is protection of property. We're also fully equipped and, and we're also aware to deal with the preservation of forensic evidence because every UD scene is, is potentially a crime scene. And mm. at all times, we're trying to restore the scene to normality as soon as possible. Now, the last two items, so preservation of forensic evidence and restoration of the scene to normality, depending on the tactical situation, we may change them slightly. Okay. Mm. Um, we conduct our render safe operations using remote and semi-remote means in order of priority. So remote means utilize bomb disposal robots, for example, and the Ordnance Corps has developed a strategic collaboration in the design and development of our robotics capability with our partners in Reem based in Trilly. So basically, we've, we've been using a, an Irish-designed and developed uh, EOD robot ever since the late 1970s. Um, some of the photographs that people would see online may be of the, the Hobo robot, which we have recently upgraded to the, a robot that we call the Reacher. It's an excellent piece of equipment, and we also have a smaller robot that we can deploy from the Reacher as well for, for different roles. But coming back to why we may not use remote means, it's, it's not always tactically feasible, and we're not always, always able to get a robot on scene. So semi-remote means involve the delivery downrange towards the device or, or, or the ID in question of an equipment piece or a weapon or a tool, or maybe a small explosive charge that will have the desired render safe procedure effect on the device in question. If you are deploying downrange, you're wearing the bomb suit. Before though, you uh, do what we call the positive action on the device, the human operator is back within the safety of the incident control point. So the, the positive action on the device is, is carried out from a safe distance. And then we have, finally, after remote and semi-remote, we have manual actions. Uh, they are last resort, obviously, um, but there's something that I, I'm not permitted to discuss in this forum. When we watch um, movies of, of people doing your job, Rowan, it's often, you know, poor men under time pressure, sweating profusely as they cut the green wire or the, the red wire. It, it, is it anything like that in real life? Uh, well, uh, the pressure is there sometimes. Um, but uh, whether or not we, we cut wires is not something that uh, I'm at liberty to, uh, to discuss here. But I mean, if, if I knew that, you know, a certain brand of EOD officer always cut a specific wire, then I could use that as, as the potential perpetrator against that EOD operator or, or EOD team. And, and that would constitute what we, we would call a, a targetable action. And, and, and this is the reason why we don't discuss specific tactics, uh, techniques and procedures. You're listening to Future Proof on News Talk. We're speaking with Commandant Rowan Clark, whose name has been changed uh, about um, the research and, and innovation that goes into developing technologies and approaches to basically diffuse bombs across the world. Um, I know you can't, for security reasons, talk about diffusing uh, manual munitions, but um, can you tell me uh, a little bit about what it's like being in the field remotely disarming a, a potentially fatal bomb? Like, what is that like? It's it's challenging. Uh, but again, before you go on your first operation and, and bearing in mind that you, you don't know when you're going to be called. It's, it's not like this, this is going to happen on a, a Friday evening at 10 o'clock. It could be any time, day or night. But when you are tasked, it's, it's extremely challenging. Uh, it's a very complicated environment. And unless you can gain a large degree of situational awareness within the first couple of minutes on a call, there's a tendency for that scenario or situation to get away from you. So an EOD operator has to be able to take on uh, a massive amount of information whilst keeping situation awareness on scene and, and gain a real-time appreciation or threat assessment of the uh, not only the device in question, but also the tactical situation as well. I, I can only imagine it as, as, a, as a job, like what it must be like in that scenario. And having watched films like The Hurt Locker, you get this, you get this incredible appreciation for this particular role, which is, which is often a humanitarian role, presumably with the Defence Forces. You're often dealing with people who are 
trying to defuse mines, um, trying to um, to clean up areas that have been sort of made dangerous by terrorist organizations. Is, is that typically the case or is that something you can talk about? It is typically the case. What I would say about the job is <laughs> I think it's one of the best jobs in the world because you you do practically and operationally what you train to do. So so there's there's no day that you're you're in training that that you think okay I, I may not need this. So throughout the two years of, of your training at at UD team leader level and you know the four years of your training at uh, number two level, you're you're always considering how how does this information that I'm receiving today how does it apply to what I'm going to be doing in the future, uh, and how how will this help me to ultimately. Uh, render safe a, a dangerous or complex piece of explosive ordnance on scene. Talk to me about the the research. Then, what is the disarm project? So the the disarm project. Um, uh, the bottom line in front of it with it is we are working to expand or augment our range of uh, deployable techniques. So uh, dis- disarm stands for disablement in situ alternative remote means. Um, and if I just talk about disablement for a second, what that means is that you are rendering safe a device or an IED by either breaking the electrical continuity of that device or separating the explosive train of that device. So basically the, the device cannot function as intended. So mm. that's the ultimate end goal of any UD operation. Um, the Ordnance School uh, has been involved in a successful bid for funding from the Public Service Innovation Fund. And what we're using this for is to, to expand the Ordnance School's capacity to, to produce EOD prototypes of an operational standard. Uh, the Ordnance School, of course, is, is the school that is involved in training uh, all operators at, at, at every level. So most EOD tactics, techniques and procedures are, are classified for operational security reasons. And I, I can't really talk about them, but I can talk about how we use them. So the Disarm Project is an example of what I would call end user driven defense innovation. So military innovation is, is innovation in the field of warfighting capability, but, but disarm is not that. So disarm is aimed at making these EOD seams as safe as possible. So returning the situation to normality as, as, as soon as possible. Um, the disarm project team is led by myself, but the rest of the team are comprised of a, a number of highly motivated and exceptional young technicians from the 53rd trainee technician class. Unfortunately, I can't name any of these guys uh, because I believe they will have uh, exceptionally bright futures within the uh, EOD community. So the Disarm project started off as, as one main project initially, and it was born out of a conversation that I had with a, a US EOD operator when I was uh, working in the United States a couple of years back. Uh, and we, we cross-trained with uh, a lot of different agencies and organizations and, and uh EOD assets internationally. I mean, this is this is a global problem and strategic in nature. So, I mean, you you have to keep up to date with the sorts of technologies that so-called bad actors are using, right? I mean, if if like when liquid bombs started to be used on airplanes, understanding the mechanics of these explosives, how they might trigger, um, what sort of blast area they have, all that stuff is needs to be updated all the time, right? You have to share that information and train up each other on how to deal with it. Of course, yeah. And um, just like our, our own tactics, techniques and procedures are designed to evolve. I mean, the terrorist evolution of TTPs, they evolve as well. And, you know, the, the realm of, of IEDs, they, they don't know any borders. Yeah. Um, can you tell us then uh, about the sorts of, I mean, I know you kind of go to specifics, but what are you hoping to do? Are you hoping to design new devices or new sensors or what is it, what's the aim of this project? Are you trying to come up with new tools and, and better robots to be able to diffuse in different situations? Yeah, so um, the DISARM project, it's the design and development of a range of innovative end user driven solutions to complex explosive engineering problems. I think that's the best way to describe it. So it, it's fine developing a sensor, but but I mean, if the end user is talking to you and saying, well, that, that's fine, but the sensor won't work in the real world or, or in a, a a complex clandestine laboratory or, or homemade explosives factory, well, then hmm. there's no point in developing that. So the DISARM project has developed from the, the initial design prototype into um, six different and highly specific projects. Um, I won't talk talk about all of them, but... 
Most of them look at innovative ways of either gaining access to an IED within the safety of the coordinate evacuation or maybe desensitizing that IED, so making it less dangerous. And, and basically, the, these projects are enabling our capability to, to deal with these things within the safety of the, uh, the incident control point and the coordinate evacuation on scene. One of the projects specifically is examining the remote delivery of what's called a liquid safing fluid downrange. And, and what we would use this to do is desensitize those explosive substances, which are the most sensitive. So you, you alluded to some of them there when, when, when you spoke about the, the liquid bomb plots. Um, I'll, I'll throw a few other examples out, you know, the Bataclan Theatre, the, the attack on Zaventem Airport in, mm. in Europe. Uh, some of these substances are extremely and, and highly sensitive to heat impact friction or electrostatic discharge. So you know that, that spark that comes from your hand when, you know, you get out of your vehicle, that's EST. And, and that can cause a bad situation if you're confronted with some of these um, these substances. Uh, yeah. So EOD teams are often tasked to these clandestine labs or homemade explosives facilities, and they can involve a range of highly complex processes and highly dangerous substances. But the problem is that you are being presented with just a snapshot in time of what's going on. Like the, there's no label telling you, you know, this yeah. is what's being made. And, you know, there's no... You know, there's no perfectly placed, you know, chemistry manual on the table open to page 293, which tells you this is what I was at. Uh, these processes are clandestine in nature. And if I could use an analogy that a former colleague of mine uh, used to use in training uh, is that they are a thousand piece jigsaw. The only problem is that you are presented with just three pieces uh, on scene and they're all the same color. Uh, and the color that I refer to here is that most of these substances look pretty much the same. They're, they're typically a white granular crystalline substance, so kind of like salt or sugar. Uh, so it could be potentially exactly that you're dealing with, you know, in a, in a clandestine lab, because it, it could be in an apartment or somebody's kitchen. So it could be sugar. It, it could be drugs or narcotics like fentanyl, for example, or it could actually be a, an organic peroxide explosive. And the problem with that is that if you threat assess at the wrong level, and you miss the fact that it's it's the most dangerous outcome, well, then there is potential to, you know, have an extremely bad day in the field um, and you, you risk an initiation or, or, or an explosion. It's amazing uh, to think that people do this for a living and also amazing that, you know, you start off by recruiting scientists. <laughs> I'm trying to think of many of the scientists that I know and love and work uh, with on the, on the program. And this seems like the absolute antithesis of, of what they might find themselves doing uh, in, in some respects. But what sort of person puts themselves forward for this? I mean, how, how do you get recruited into the defense forces or how do you find yourself in the defense forces diffusing bombs? I mean, that's a, it's, it's a, an unusual way to spend your time. Um, yeah, I, I definitely agree. And you know, I, I come from a scientific background myself, and if you told me, you know, 17, 18 years ago, I, I, I would be doing this job, I, I probably uh, would have disagreed completely. It's not something that happens by chance. Uh, we, we choose scientists and engineers for a reason, because you, you have to be an extremely analy analytical person. But um, mm. I'll draw from my own experience. I mean, I joined the army not to do EOD, but I, I, I went through the cadet school just like everyone else. And I, I was commissioned into one of the other corps in, in the Defence Forces. And the, the chance came up and I thought, this, this sounds like a very, very interesting job. So, so I applied. Uh, there's a very real danger of, of failure when you put yourself forward for training, because obviously we, we, we accept uh, quite highly qualified people. And then we put them through extremely rigorous and, and demanding uh, phases of training. But, you know, even throughout the years, I've been lucky enough to um, be involved in training operators myself. And, and when the, the DISARM project started, I was uh, the chief instructor in our ordnance school. And um, I now currently work in the Office of Emergency Planning uh, based in Dublin. And the Office of Emergency Planning, or OEP, supports the Minister for Defence uh, in his role as chairman of the Government Task Force on Emergency Planning. Uh, the office itself is a joint civil-military office and... Through the GTF, it, it oversees and coordinates emergency planning at, at a national level. So what I can say about the job is that 
it's it's extremely demanding, challenging, and extremely varied as well. But it, it's also um, it's highly rewarding. Roman, obviously, um, through your career, you've made a number of explosive devices safe and and, uh, and made a place livable or an area habitable again. I presume that's an extremely rewarding thing to to successfully um, remove such a grave threat to people's lives. Yes, it, it's it's very rewarding, but um, we're we're not constantly on call. And and what I would say is, we have a number of VOD teams on on site and and ready to deploy twenty four seven. But we do have two roles in the uh, in the military. The operational one is, is obviously quite rewarding, but but um, our, our logistical role accounts for the the majority of our time. And uh, so I, th- I like to think that that keeps us all firmly grounded. With the Disarm project, is the ultimate aim to develop these new technologies and then disseminate them to presumably trusted um, governments, agencies across the world to help them make spaces clear that have been contaminated with these improvised or other other explosive devices? Uh, yes, I mean, I alluded to the fact that we, we we cross-train with others. And if if we identify a capability gap, then there is a very, very good chance that another organization or or another EOD training school has the same. So, uh, I mean, we, we train with not just all of our European partners, but uh, all of our international partners in this regard. Irish defense innovation is not a new concept. So the, the, the Ordnance Corps has an excellent track record already in innovative collaboration with other agencies, industry and academia. If we identify an operational capability gap caused by an emerging terrorist or criminal trend in the field of EOD, we have to tackle it. Otherwise, we're not doing mm-hmm. our job. So the solutions generated by projects like DISARM, I know that the, the, six, the range of six projects uh, that we've displayed within the Ordnance School uh, most operators who have seen these things have said, well, I can think of at least two or three operational tasks when I could have used this piece of equipment. So what we do on scene is we innovate. As I said, there's, there's, there's no checklist. So if you're confronted with something new, you have to be able to adapt and improvise in real time, but also do it safely and, and keep control of that operation. What I would say is the solutions generated by projects like Disarm, I believe they have excellent potential for scalability. But bottom line up front is this, projects like this generate end user driven innovative solutions to complex explosive engineering problems. What they're actually about is is saving rescuable lives. Well, from the Irish Defence Forces, Commandant Rowan Clark, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. He is um, a very interesting guy, isn't he? What a a job. Could you imagine that being your job? And and as I say, I really wanted to talk to him about, you know, the manual diffusing of these bombs, which does happen a la Hurt Locker. But um, in the interest of not putting anyone in severe danger, uh, which I think is a reasonable excuse, um, he said, look, it's not a good idea for me to be talking about that because we maybe give away trade secrets. Um, So, look, um, we asked the questions that we could and, and so we had to think about the questions that we couldn't and how we could give you uh, what we what we wanted from the interview. Hope you enjoyed it. Love to get your comments on that um, on, on, on anything on that piece. Aidan McKelvey, producer, joins me now to go through some of your comments from last week. What did you make of that, Aidan? Like, what a job. Yeah, it's, I don't know, like, it, you know, the kind of risk reward thing that we all have internally. Like, I, I, I mean, I totally get that. It, it's, it's very rewarding, like, in that, you know, when you get it right, you're literally saving people's lives. Uh, you're making, taking away fear, you're taking away pain. Um, but I, I just like, it's like he's, it's like these people, they don't go for the, uh, what if I get it wrong? I guess that's why they're great at their job. Mm. You know, like, they, they're, they're just determined to get it right. And that's what they do. Yeah, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's it's like it, may, it makes the risks that I have going in on my daily job <laughs> seem so minuscule. Well, well it's <laughs> just the, yeah, <laughs> no, for sure. Like it puts a few things in context, all right. But that that idea of you know every new explosive device that you approach, you know, you don't know what they've done with it. Like it's not there's no manual for it. Like that to me is no matter how confident you were about the last one. You have no idea what's going to happen with the next one. So, yeah, that's a terrifying job. God. It is. But actually, that's one of the things when he said that, it did make me think that 
that there is an element of an of an appeal there like if you know they know what they're doing so they can stay as safe as it's possible to stay but what they're faced with is is like a mystery you know you come in and you have bits and pieces of what's being done and you have to try and with the knowledge you have figure out the mystery and figure out what they're trying to do what stage they're at yeah and i can to a degree i can get it there is an appeal to that uh, it's just that like i would enjoy that um, the problem it was solving. like you know yeah. and yeah, if it was like an escape room where the worst thing could happen is uh, I'm stuck in a part of the escape room for 20 minutes that I've spent money on. <laughs> in yeah. that in that context, I can enjoy the mystery. I think but for in the context for me, Sudoku would probably scratch whatever itch I have in that on that scale. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. So last week we were talking about um, vaccines and uh, we were talking about how pathogens work. Paul from Burr in County Offaly, beautiful place. Hi, Paul. Says, hi, can you please give me what percentage of people suffer from severe cramps in the biceps muscle in the arm? I presume he's talking about post-injection. Uh, and why they insist on giving the vaccine into the same arm. Thanks. I don't think they insist, do they? I think... Well, they, de- they definitely ask you. I remember they asked me yeah. which was my right hand. Yeah, and I think they and do they that just... The one. Yeah, but you could choose to... To, to get it in the, in the writing hand if you wanted to. I don't think there's any... And I think you can choose to do a different arm as well. I think it's just being more assertive is my solution to your problem, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, less, less assertive in the text and more assertive um, in real life. Um, I don't know about the severe cramps thing. I know, I know some people do get irritation from the vaccine, which is um, which is normal, I think. But I have no idea on the stats and I am too lazy to look that up for you. Sorry. Um, and I, besides which, I wouldn't do any better job than you would uh, on your phone. Aideen in Dublin says, can your guest comment on the fact that even though we knew it was a respiratory disease, COVID, the delay in mask wearing, even in hospitals, was attributed to a lack of evidence for their effectiveness. I will never understand that delay. People died. Well, we just didn't know. We didn't know. Um, whether masks were good or bad for you. And certainly um, in general practice, you need masks in surgery and so on. And there was a huge worry that masks were going to be uh, out of of circulation. I think we just didn't have the evidence. Now we know masks do help. Um, But this is what happens in research, right, Aidan? Like, you you know, you have a theory, uh, you work with that until you get the evidence and you change your understanding of what's going on. Yeah, I I think there's there's there is that's a major part of it. Another part of it, which probably people are less uh, quick to kind of acknowledge. um, There's probably like a political element of it. I think like the whole way through it, it's a case of like managing expectations and managing the evidence. And they, they didn't want to go for the mass thing. Uh, because people might have resistance to it until they were sure that this is what the evidence says and they could point to a research paper. You know, like they probably knew, oh, yeah, the mask will, it probably will help. But until they had, you know, the the research done and the research specifically on COVID-19 and they knew that they had the numbers of masks to give to people, they kind of said, oh, well, we'll just take, you know, we'll we'll hold off on that and yeah. we'll drip feed people things that they have to do as we go. I, I think there's a bit of that, but I, like they really? never acknowledged that that's what they were doing. Yeah, I, I just think like there was there was a that whole. That sounds a little conspiracy theorist to me. <laughs> I have my tinfoil hat on here. I know. I just I just think people like there is a balance to be had. We've seen it all along between um, the politics of what you know how you communicate to the public and what they will actually do. And pushing them too far to the point that they're like, oh, I'm not doing that. That's bollocks. Yeah, but I don't think anyone was smart enough in their communications um, to figure that out and, and manipulate that to their benefit. But look, um, we, we don't we, we don't really know, I suppose, is the answer. Um, Mark in Cork says, I've worked with bacteriophages, um, which are viruses that eat bacteria for over 40 years. He says, the virus needs the calcium ion to bind to the cell. Also, the burst size varies from 10 to the hundreds and in the process destroys the bacteria cell and attacks tens to hundreds depending on burst size. I hope that is of use to someone. Uh, it's not of huge use to me. Um, Darren, if, although if I if that had come, if I'd read that when I was doing the interview, it would have made more sense, I'm sure. Darren in Galway says, there's no money in cures, lots of money in treating. They learned that from polio. 
Um, no, I'm sure there is money in cures for sure. I think the idea that big pharma wants you to stay sick with a chronic disease that you have to keep treating, um, I, I just don't buy that, to be honest. I think there'll be very big money in this uh, pill that Pfizer have just announced that they, they're not, it's not ready to go on market yet, but they seem to be getting great results. It's like a treatment for COVID. If you already have COVID, that will stop. I think it was nine out of 10 people being hospitalized. And uh, you can be sure that once that gets through all the tests, Pfizer will be advertising and making a hell of a lot of money out of that. Mm. Um, sometimes you can have both the pharma's companies. Now, pharma doesn't advertise. They're not allowed to advertise. Oh, well, that's that's true. So yeah, but they, they, sometimes they, you can have money made and good happening at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> They're true. not mutually it's exclusive. Um, on Life As We Made It, we spoke to the brilliant Beth Shapiro about genetically modified organisms. Not as many <laughs> controversial texts on that as we normally get on, on the program about non-controversial stuff. Um, he says, there's a, uh, one person says, there's a belief that with the death of the megafauna, essentially the huge animals that they used to be, I find it weird that there was a period of time in which all the normal animals that we have now were just enormous. That was like a, a giant badger that was the size of a cow and a giant cow that was the size of a truck. Um, and now they're all gone. It's awfully sad. Um, and he says, that the, uh, the person says, is there is a belief that with the death of the megafauna over the last 10,000 years that we have been in a mass extinction for millennia? If so, can we intervene now? I think the short answer is sort of. Not really. <laughs> I'm such a pessimist. I mean, I really am. I just, I think we, we could, but we won't. We'll just yeah, I'm, I'm eat more McDonald's. Again. I'm just laughing at you fudged the short answer. I thought you were going to like the short answer is yes, but no, it's like the short answer is maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, uh, person says, did that woman just talk about castrating cows to stop them growing horns? Not sure she knows much about farming. Indeed, I would imagine Beth Shapiro doesn't know much about farming, although you never know. Um, but yeah, she's a geneticist. She was talking about, um, these sort of cows that have horns which are not very useful and that you could genetically modify them to not have horns Kieran says this lady is glorifying the disease infected industrial slaughter of animals finding ways to increase the productivity of this horror is repulsive how is this good for any animal um well, well, I, I suppose you're, you're I mean it is the, the question around the slaughtering of animals um it is sort of gross to be optimizing them to make them easy to eat, right? So they just slide right in there, Aiden. Wouldn't you agree? Like, just make them just, you know, breeding these animals to be tastier, uh, easier to handle, easier to slaughter. Like, that is a bit, something quite not quite right about it. It, it is, yeah. Like, like I, um, I'm not, I don't necessarily have a moral objection in its entirety to eating meat, uh, but I do... I do do two vegan days and two veggie days a week. I think that you can kind of make the argument, oh, like it's natural, it's evolution, it's the circle of life, blah, blah, blah. But when you sort of industrialize it yeah. and that's, yeah. It does when you industrialize it, it gets, I mean, like the same with any, I mean, you think about mass production of almost any animal and it's. It is gross. Yeah. And like, we do like to think of our cows happily out in the field and then, you know, in a green field with loads of space, but at lots of, I mean, lots of places that isn't the case. Or no, but in, Ireland, or in like Ireland, in fairness, we have this pasture grazing. In Ireland, I will say, we do a lot better than most countries. Yeah, I would say that. And there are, there are things, if, you, if you're not, I mean, if you're a vegan or a vegetarian, you're not going to eat meat. But even as somebody who might be omnivorous, there are things you can do to mitigate that you know you can buy from trusted sources and buy in your local uh butcher and check what the kind of traceability is and all that type of stuff mm. but uh, in the end i guess <laughs> the bottom line is you're still having something killed to eat it so it, i suppose it's a spectrum of where you want to be morally yeah. last week as well i think it was susan said that she lost her sense of smell due to covid um someone was it susan i think it was susan um it seems like a susan thing to do uh, she'll love that. Uh, <laughs> someone says um, carbon monoxide has no smell. How do we account for that and counteract it? It just has no smell. <laughs> you <laughs> get a carbon monoxide alarm. That's what you have in your ears. Yeah, I'm not quite uh, sure. I get that one. Alan and Cork says lost my smell with COVID nineteen. Has returned, but not fully. However, there's a constant burnt toast 
um, smell, which varies in intensity at different times during the day. That is um, a, a nasal form of tinnitus. Um, and I, I have heard that some people have got that. I couldn't imagine anything worse than having this sort of like constant white noise of, of an odour. But at least it's burnt toast. Like that's not that it's bad. not that bad. No. Yeah, it's a nice, nice ish odour. Gary in Ballycotton says, sense of smell. I never had one. I have taste, but obviously it would be different to people who can smell. Listening to the show this morning, wondering, is my threat response much slower because of my lack of smell? Um, so this is the story w- w- that uh, we were hearing from Susan that actually um, our sense of smell is the fastest danger alert system in our brains. That's, that's where the story came from. Um, it is probably a bit slower, but we're talking milliseconds. Um, and if you don't have a sense of smell, it's it's quite sad because your your ability to taste is hugely hampered by that. Um, and you really just don't taste food very well at all. I do a, an experiment for Science Week where I get kids to hold their nose and put a jelly bean in their mouth and chew. And until they let go of their nose, they literally can't tell what taste it is. And that is how much our, or what flavor it is. And that is how much our nose affects our sense of taste. It's huge. Right. Yes. Um, thanks, Aidan McKelvey, producer um, on sound, Steve McLoon. Thanks also to JJ Clark, Simon Keane and Garrett Mahal. We'll be back with more Future Proof on Tuesday in your podcast feed. In the meantime, stay curious. Mm-hmm.